Before I begin this episode of the podcast, I'd like to speak about something not related to mountain biking, and it's far more important than anything we discuss on this show. Myself and this show does not support the actions or the existence of neo-Nazis, white supremacists, or the KKK. The fact that those words need to be said this week is very upsetting. And the fact that the United States of America has a leader that struggles to say those words is disgusting. Hate and violence in the name of nationalism and white supremacy is not something to tiptoe around. It's not a topic that requires 48 hours to make up your mind on. I want to let everyone affected by this, the people of Charlottesville, and the Charlottesville Area Mountain Bike Club know that you're in my thoughts, and I hope that mountain biking can be a safe space for everyone. Now, more than ever, we need to be inclusive and welcoming to all people. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. Despite affecting every mountain biker, the world of advocacy is small. In every community, there's a handful of people that pick up a shovel. And there's an even smaller group of people who pick up the battle for the club or trail association to push the paperwork, to do the boring, not-so-glamorous work. And I want to spend the next two episodes exploring the role that mountain bike media and the cycling industry play in our cause. We're going to start by exploring the role of media with two examples. One, arguably harmful to advocacy, and the second, extremely helpful. I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 23 of Frontlines. My first guest is Steve Sheldon. He's the trail director at the Tri-Cities Off-Road Cycling Association in Coquitlam and Port Moody, just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thanks. On July 27th, an article and video was posted to Pinkbike, and the article was edited very quickly after some complaints were made. But for those who didn't see the article or see the article in its first uh, iteration, um, would you be able to paraphrase for us what it, what it said, what it included? So the article was a video of Sid Slotegraf um, riding an area in in Squamish. The video itself, it was some fantastic writing. It was some imaginative lines. Um, however, after the video, the article talked about construction of the line and it included one of these little lifestyle stories, um, amongst which there was a quote that said, Sid gets a kick out of riding trails in a way that may offend your local trail association and justifies it by calling it job creation and employment opportunity. It's good for the economy. And it was that particular line that sort of really set me off about what this article was. Mm -hmm. That was the line that was removed from the article, but there were certainly some other issues uh, with with the article beyond right. just that. And and I think it 
it touched on on something that we often see when it comes to mountain bike media and videos that are that are being released. You know, how does this stuff affect local trail associations? So there's several ways that this impacts us. For example, videos sensationalizing taking corners incredibly quickly and roosting a berm. Somebody has to go in and replace the dirt on the berm. But just replacing dirt, that's not a major maintenance issue. One of the other problems I see is some videos will show people taking a, a sideline, like one line that's not on the trail, but it, it looks really cool in the video. So they take that line and then people see that go, hey, that looks cool. They start taking it. Now you have a braid and a potential safety concern. And that, again, somebody has to go in and repair this damage. What this video did, though, is it took it one step further in that it acknowledges that, you know, some of these lines that are taken, the trail societies don't like, and said, so if that's the case, rather than wreck their trails, just go build a new trail, which you think, on the surface, you say, well, it's better than wrecking an existing trail, except they're building big structures in the woods. Um, they're building unsanctioned work. And at the end of the article, they're saying it's not on any map, but go ride it. Um, the problem is then, as a trail organization, we're working with land managers. Uh, we're trying to keep all of our trails above board, sanctioned, well-maintained, and one of the biggest issues with most land managers is liability. And with liability, that means if there's a massive jump, land manager is going to look at that jump and say, well, what's to stop some random rider just riding off that jump and injuring themselves? And the answer is generally there's nothing stopping them apart from common sense. So this video is sensationalizing going out there building big jumps that could create liability issues. And on top of that, the trail, they walk away, they've got their edit, and say the trail never gets found, you've now got derelict features in the woods that the land manager at some point is going to say, well, what about these stunts? Somebody's got to dismantle them. And then that again comes back to the trail society. So my personal point of view is I would much rather have our builders and our volunteers working towards improving the existing trail network or even building new trails to add onto the network rather than constantly chasing all of these rogue things and cleaning up the mess left by people who just wanted their quick little video edit or their 15 minutes of fame or just wanted to look cool or feel cool or, or whatever reason they use to create this. I just wish that there was more forethought into the implication of what their actions lead into long term, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and it you know this really takes away from the club and the the trail association being able to continue to do work for every other rider that's out there. You know this really hits the the bottom line of of trail work essentially that that the capacity of of the organization. It really does. Um, Talker has recently been working with the province of BC through Rec Sites and Trails BC. And one of the major hurdles that we've had to overcome in order to satisfy some of these liability concerns is on Eagle Mountain, there was 
a legacy of old trails, trails such as the Dentist, which had some pretty massive features. Uh, things like little wooden roller coasters into gaps over old growth logs, drops that are 10 plus feet high, um, and not just pink bike roller 10 feet. <laughs> um, actually big, dangerous features that you could easily just ride off with no gatekeeper or anything. So I understand the liability concern of the land manager in wanting to control access to features like this. But in the case of the dentist, even more so, nobody rides that trail anymore. The features have become broken, slick from green slime building up on the woods. They're, they're derelict. And quite often we'll ride past and go, oh, hey, it's like a museum into the past. And we don't see it for what it actually is. To most people who use the forest, it's an eyesore or a potential liability. And, and I kind of agree with that now. However, I do still like having some of that history in the woods. The land manager comes along and says, well, you don't need that. And it's not doing you any favors. I'd like to see it gone. And now that means that we have to divert a significant portion of our volunteer resource into removing all of these features. And in the case of one of the features, a, a really large uh, drop with a big ladder ramp leading into it on the Three Little Pigs Trail, we logged just removing one feature about 28 hours just to dismantle, remove nails, scatter the woods, and naturalize the site. So it is a huge time sink for volunteer labor. Yeah, and, and I think that history is, is neat. And to have that feature left there to, for historical purposes is, is neat. But from a land manager's perspective or from other trail users, it, it might just be a, a, instead of a, a legacy or a history of our legacy, it, it's just a legacy of abandonment of trails. And and I think that's what a lot of these videos don't discuss and and some of the things that I heard from a lot of other people about this particular article and this particular video and, and other videos and articles is that what happens after the fact and and what was really concerning about this particular article was the lifestyle story that was behind it was that this rider was leaving Squamish they were getting out of town and they were moving back out east uh, in a month and so the story of them literally leaving and leaving this behind was included in, in the article as well. Exactly. I, I spoke to a number of people um, who've built trail, built lines. Some of the trail builders, they like seeing this imagination. They think it, it's really cool. Uh, and, and I agree. I, I love seeing the sport progressing. But equally, having to deal with a land manager, it does change your perspective. And you have to look at both sides of what's going on and respect the fact that at the end of the day, most of us are guests on someone else's land. And we could say we want anything we want, but ultimately we don't have the final decision. We have to earn trust and build a relationship with these land managers. And through that trust, we will gain some power, some autonomy, but Things like this, they can go a long way to erode any trust that's being built up or to hinder any trust building exercises that are currently ongoing. And talking to some people who've filmed such lines, it seems like there is 
a responsible portion of people out there who do actively go through the dismantling and renaturalization process after filming a line. And it wouldn't be much of a stretch and it would have made, in this case, it would have made the video extra fantastic if it showed the process of building the trail, getting the shots, and then just a little bit at the end, even if it was in the article about the dismantling of the line, the renaturalization, um, even, even taking it one step further, which is probably a little unrealistic, talking to land managers, gaining permission for this. I don't think it would hurt the end product, but it would improve the optics for how we all operate on a day-to-day basis. Awesome. Well, Steve, first off, I want to thank you for, for just bringing this to, to our attention and, and second for, for discussing it on the show. I think, uh, I think everyone appreciates it. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. It's easy to blame media, but we also need to recognize that media simply reports and reflects on what the public does or wants. And in the case of mountain bike media, especially websites, they require a lot of content. And much of that content is user generated, meaning it's not written or created by staff of the media company. It could be submitted by a user who probably isn't getting paid, or it was financed by a sponsor like a component company or bike brand. Before we go down the rabbit hole and I further enrage the community about the harm that media can do to the advocacy efforts, I'd like to remind everyone about the opposite. The power of media can go both ways. And my next guest was able to use 40,000 comments, many from Pinkbike, to prevent a resource extraction company from taking over the original Red Bull Rampage venue. Heads up. During my interview, you'll hear a dog barking in the background. First, my apologies. And second, it stops after a couple of minutes and does not go on for the entire podcast. So if it's driving you crazy, push through. It's only temporary. My second guest this episode is Ryan Dunphy. He's the Up Community Manager at the Sierra Club. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. So I think many are familiar with the, the Sierra Club, but uh, what is Up? So adup.org was a platform that the Sierra Club built um, and launched back in 2015 that was basically, um, you know, a response to, you know, sites that, you know, your listeners may have used like uh, change.org or Kickstarter. Some of these these platforms for, you know, either fundraising or online action taking that are, you know, very slick. Um, you can, it's very clear how to use them um, as a user, very user-friendly. And they're also just platforms that look and, and feel a lot more like, you know, the other applications we're used to using online, like Facebook and um, Instagram, things like that. So it's both platform that that's generally looks better, it's cleaner, it's a lot less confusing to understand you know, what's being asked of you. And it's also designed to, uh, you know, use the best, you know, technology practices out there to uh, generate action on a campaign. So we have a really effective kind of Twitter-focused action you can utilize as part of a campaign or there's, you know, other things like social media recruiting tools. So the idea being that, you know, you have not only, if you're trying to find a, get a signatures on a petition, say, to um, you know, petition a land user for, you know, not like access that you actually are not just sending an email to try to get people to sign, send their signatures in, but you're also uh, have these other kind of more current 
uh, web best practices that are going to enhance the success of that online campaign. Awesome. Could you provide us with a, a little background about what's been happening around the old Red Bull Rampage site out in Virgin, Utah? The Red Bull Rampage site is in a really interesting location. It's in the town of Virgin, which, um, you know, I don't think, you know, Red Bull really explained necessarily where that was. So it's, it's basically the next town over from uh, Zion National Park. So it's, you know, within a couple miles of the boundary line of the most popular national park in Utah. So it's, it's in this really stellar kind of desert location. And obviously, um, you know, now there's been a second venue kind of in the same area, but both these places obviously have these incredible kind of like natural, you know, sand castle, dirt spine walls that, you know, are pretty, pretty wild to ride. But, you know, a number, a lot of this, the majority of the land out there is obviously managed by the U.S. federal government um, and the Bureau of Land Management in particular. Um, so what they do every year is that they, you know, they get inquiries about uh, parcels of land that they have ownership over um, from folks who want to, you know, make use of that land for economic purposes and largely that's for, you know, things like oil and gas drilling. Um, so what had happened is that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, some folks asked for a few different parcels of land outside of Zion to be considered for, um, you know, oil and gas exploration, oil and gas leases. So they basically, you know, uh, go through a public comment period and, you know, figure out, okay, you know, who really cares about this land? What are the potential environmental impacts of, um, you know, oil and gas drilling? And then if they are kind of, you know, there's a number of very uh, specific processes that they have to go to. And if they kind of go through all those, then it still seems like drilling is a good idea according to the criteria of uh, the BLM. Then they offer people the opportunity to explore that area um, for drilling. Their Rampage site was one of three um, parcels that are being considered in this area. And, you know, there are a number of folks who were kind of advocating for them not to be. Um, considered for drilling just based on their proximity to Zion and impact on uh, the town of Virgin itself. So they had put these up as kind of proposed areas for these uh, leases and then basically asked for public comment. So there is a group that I'm familiar with called the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance that does a lot of obviously conservation work in that area of the country. And they had been uh, you know, working on this and, and also, you know, there's been a tremendous effort by the, the folks in the town of Virgin and just the area in general to kind of vouch for the importance of this area as, you know, a natural resource for reasons other than uh, drilling. And and so I'm not quite sure how I uh, heard about it, but, you know, I was, you know, I found out about it through whatever means it was and um, you know, thought it was a great opportunity to try and see what kind of impact we could have by tying some of these mountain bike endemic media outlets like Pink Bike and using that as kind of an outlet to drive activism, which was, you know, I came from digital media over at Tucson Gravity Research and had done some partnerships with organizations like uh, Protect Our Winners, but was really curious what impact we could have um, with a, an outlet the size of Pink Bike. Yeah, so so an article was posted on on Pinkbike and and what did what role did that play into in uh, in this? 
I kind of hold my breath when I uh, was pursuing this because it's it's really hard to get people to to click uh, to do anything really. I mean, if you're you know looking at uh, Facebook, you know, uh, in general, you're looking, you know, you put up a post, maybe if you're a media outlet and you might get, I don't know, between one and 10% of everyone who actually sees that post to actually click on it to your website. So if you're talking about, you know, you know, uh, losing people as you go, kind of like you, you lose 90% of people right away. And then if you're asking them to do another thing in that post, if they even find that link to begin with to take action, you know, you're, you're losing people rapidly as you uh, ask them to do more and more, even if that's just read more than the title of the article. So um, I was not, uh, I guess I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't expecting to have this New York response to this, this great article that Vernon did, uh, Vernon Felton over at Pink Pike. But, um, you know, within a couple of weeks, I, I think we did maybe a, a two months campaign, um, you know, we had almost 40,000 signatures on our public comment form um, advocating for the value of that land as, you know, both the site of mountain bike history and also just a, a site for mountain bike recreation. So that, that was, you know, several uh, dozen times more signatures than I would have ever expected to get. And, you know, we have some, some folks within the Sierra Club who support us who are mountain bikers, but obviously the, the following on Pink Bike is, is you know, significantly uh, larger. So, you know, I, I would say I was blown away at uh, what kind of response we had. I was definitely not expecting, you know, 38,000 and change people um, to come sign that form. And, and from what I could tell, the majority of those folks came from Pink Bike. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. So I, I think many mountain bikers perceive the Sahara Club as, as being a anti-mountain biking. And, and certainly the Sierra Club is in disagreement with the Sustainable Trails Coalition on their position to allow bikes in wilderness. But that, that doesn't mean that the Sierra Club is against responsible recreation use. No, it doesn't. So going forwards, you know, what types of uh, partnerships, you know, with the Sierra Club and, and mountain biking, are, are we going to see potentially more of this in the future? Is the Sierra Club really a, a partner for mountain bikers? I think I'd be a little obnoxious if I said we were a good a good partner of, of the mountain bike community. I think that, um, you know, there's a couple facets to that phenomenon. I think the, the wilderness designation and the modification of it in the 80s to, you know, uh, exclude what was called mechanized uh, transportation, which, you know, controversially came to include mountain biking, that was really, you know, pushed by the Sierra Club and, and you know, was lobbied for extensively by the Sierra Club. So, you know, following that, um, that decision, we, you know, we lost a lot of credibility and a lot of support from the mountain bike community. And that is still, you know, dogging us uh, to this day in terms of um, you know, our possibility of being, you know, a serious partner with the bike community. Side that, there's also, you know, a number of examples of local Sierra Club, uh, state and local groups who are, you know, fighting trail access projects, proposals. There are, you know, four mountain bikers. Um, I think, you know, maybe Timberline, Oregon, their, their bike park is one that, that comes to mind. So, 
you know, but there's been other cases where um, there hasn't been that, you know, animosity. I think, uh, you know, one example that I can point to is up in um, the kind of Snoqualmie Pass area of Washington. And they actually, the Sierra Club worked, you know, and allowed the Evergreen Not Bike Coalition, from my understanding, to, you know, realign a, a proposed, I'm not sure if it was wilderness or uh, other kind of land boundary on the um, middle fork of the Snoqualmie River Trail. So they basically were cool with with a trail being, uh, a, a boundary being realigned in a land management plan so that this really, you know, popular mountain bike trail could persist and, and survive. You know, I think that doesn't quite bridge over into us actually, you know, advocating for, you know, mount, you know, for example, new mountain bike access or new mountain bike trails. I know we do have a ongoing relationship with Emma and we've, you know, made several statements um, in support of their efforts in terms of finding um, opportunities to support responsible recreation. But, um, you know, it needs to become a more active part of what we, what our public lands work is so that, you know, mountain bikers can actually see that we're, you know, actively supporting uh, opportunities for them to, to get outside and ride. Well, hopefully, you know, as, as I think us as mountain bikers mature a little bit and, uh, and, and as you know, I'm sure the Sierra club evolves as well, that our two groups can kind of work together more and more. Cause I, I think that we as mountain bikers can certainly bring something to the table in, in this relationship. So hopefully that, uh, that happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, being a, you know, skier, a surfer, Sound biker. I mean, all these sports are, um, they, sh- they share as much in common with what the average Sierra Club supporter wants to see happen in the, in the world. You know, they, they share 99% of that, those same values. So it seems to me a bit short-sighted and, and frankly ridiculous if we can't be working and uh, supporting, you know, the goals of, of those groups of, of folks and adding them on to the folks that support our our work, whether that's in public lands or climate or any of the really big challenges that affect us all equally, um, you know, and the big threats that, that threaten us all equally, uh, you know, from an environmental perspective right now. Awesome. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. Mountain bike media grabs the people's attention. And to get 40,000 sets of eyes on a potential loss of trail is huge. But to get 40,000 comments is incredible. And it shows just how important mountain bike media is as a tool in the advocacy toolbox. Ryan touched on what the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance was able to do to prevent trail loss. And we're going to hear more about that from the Evergreen Executive Director, Yvonne Krauss. But before we dive into the topic of bikes in wilderness, we're going to continue exploring our topic of the mountain bike industry and advocacy. Next episode, we'll be hearing from Seb Kemp. He's the Canadian brand manager for Santa Cruz and Juliana Bicycles. And while I've been exploring stories for the topic, I rediscovered a story that broke in February of 2016. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. The city of Los Altos Hills in California banned bikes in the Bryn Preserve. Councilman John Radford blamed Strava as being the cause for the ban and said, quote, the speed numbers that were talked about tonight are just incredibly unacceptable. I can't even believe. Sorry, whoever's done those apps and whoever puts that together, 
That just put a hole in the whole argument, unquote. And he made that statement at a council meeting after Strava was used to show how quick mountain bikers and cyclists were using a trail at. And when this particular city council saw exactly how fast riders were going down this trail, they were left with no choice but to prevent cyclists from accessing this trail. Their hands were really tied on this. And even the councillors that maybe were for opening these trails or, or keeping these trails open to mountain bikes, they really couldn't do anything about that. Their job and, and they're really taxed with the public safety. Now, almost every trail association I've spoken with on this topic has expressed some frustration with Strava. But beyond this isolated instance, I'm not able to find any direct trail loss from Strava speeds or their heat map. And if you're someone or you know someone who can weigh in on this topic, it would be great to hear from you. I've requested a comment from Strava via their Facebook page and I've yet to receive a response. I'm still hopeful to hear from them. Like always, you can get in touch with me a number of ways. First, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at FrontlinesMTB. You can also send me an email or an audio file to FrontlinesMTB at gmail.com. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes as well as links to the Tri-City Off-Road Cycling Associations and ADAP and the Sierra Club. And like always, music is by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.